Okay, well, welcome to the LSE. Um, I'm Piers Ludlow, and I'm going to be chairing the event tonight. Um, but you haven't turned up to listen to me, so I'm not going to say very much, but I want to briefly introduce our speaker and say a word or two about uh, the book that he will be um, talking about tonight. Um, Gavin Hewitt is probably known to many of you um, as the uh, BBC's Europe editor and therefore somebody who is frequently on our television screens or on the Today programme in the morning reporting about uh, the latest goings-on in Brussels and elsewhere. Uh, but Brussels is just the latest stop in, in a very long and distinguished uh, sort of journalistic career that has taken him to Washington um, and many other places besides uh, and has w included several sort of award-winning documentaries and, uh, and other reports. So like all journalists, he has a, a very wide spread of territory. But I suspect that when he arrived in Brussels in 2009, he didn't quite know what he was getting into. Um, it's always a challenging posting and always an interesting one, but I don't think anybody in that city quite knew what the next few years would hold in terms of tumult events and, uh, and being quite at the centre of so much media attention. The book that he's going to be talking to us uh, tonight about is, I think, the sort of book that only really somebody placed where he was could produce. Um, it's not an academic study of the, Europe, uh, of, of the Euro crisis. In a sense, thank God for that. Um, people like me will write those in years to come. What it is instead is an attempt to go beyond the, at times, highly technical economics of the crisis, to go beyond also the um, sometimes bewildering institutional jungle of European institutions and national political entities and so on, and instead try and explore the very dramatic events of the last three years or so, uh, partly as they unfolded in Brussels and looking at the interaction of the key political figures and the key political leaders and how they behaved and how they interacted together. But also, and I think this is the crucial strength of the book, which I, I had the pleasure of reading earlier today, um, also going beyond that and looking away from Brussels at the, at the impact of decisions taken in Brussels and decisions not taken in Brussels on European citizens uh, in Athens in Lisbon, uh, in Madrid, uh, in Dublin, and in many other places. And I think the great strength of the book is the way in which you get the personalities of Merkel, of Sarkozy, of Berlusconi, and the many other figures who we frequently talk about. But you also get the impact on the daily lives of many uh, Europeans who, in a sense, didn't see this coming and have been shocked, disrupted, and had, in some cases, their lives utterly transformed by what has unfolded. But I think that's enough of me. Uh, I think what we should do now is give an LSE welcome to our speaker, Gavin Hewitt. Uh, thank you very much, Piers, and thank you all uh, for turning up. Sometimes students are feared. The French president in particular has a habit of keeping a wary eye on campuses. There was a time when even LSE made the headlines and made the news with its protest. And the reason that it's wise to keep a wary eye on students at the moment, because in Europe today, 
It is the young who are bearing the brunt of the crisis. Unemployment for under 25-year-olds is 26% in France, 38.3% in Portugal, 38.4% in Italy, 55.9% in Spain, and 59% in Greece. These figures are unprecedented in the modern era. For a period, this steady rise in unemployment got scant attention. Not anymore. It is now seen as more threatening to the European project than debt. No one any longer doubts the seriousness and the depth of this crisis. Chancellor Merkel has spoken of Europe's toughest hour since World War II. The former governor of the Bank of England described it as the most serious crisis we have had since the 30s. And President Obama was frequently on the phone demanding action, saying that the Eurozone threatened the entire global economy. At one point, former President Sarkozy warned that the crisis threatened peace. Those who destroy the euro, he said, will take responsibility for the resurgence of conflict on our continent. Now, alongside the end of communism, this has been the biggest political drama in Europe for 60 years and is the story of a dream that turned dangerous and what I have tried to capture in my book. I want to begin anecdotally. In 2003, the people of a small village in the Spanish province of Castellon were told an airport was to be built close by. They were bewildered, a little bit unconvinced, not just because every takeoff and landing would rattle their windows. Valencia, which lay just an hour away, already had a bustling airport. With the backing of a man by the name of Carlos Fabra, a powerful local politician, the project was pushed through at a cost of 155 million euros. Sparkling new roads were built connecting to the airport. A further 7 million was spent on advertising. The only problem... The airlines were just not interested. In any event, the winds were in the wrong direction. There was not even a test flight. Fabra was undeterred. A statue was built at the entrance to the airport called the Plain Man, presumably a statue to Fabra himself, and that cost another 300,000 euros. Later, a local paper ran a mocking headline, Newsflash, Plane is seen at Castellon Airport. It turned out to be the arrival of an aluminium model plonked on top of the statue. And when challenged about this white elephant, Fabra provoked ridicule when he tried to argue this was not an airport for planes, but for people who could come and stroll around the runways. But Castellon Airport was not alone. In Spain, there were other ghost airports, ghost towns, a ghost port, even a ghost prison where not a single prisoner has shown up. Spain had been caught in the delirium of a building boom. In 2006, Spain consumed more concrete than France, Belgium, Germany and Italy combined. And Spain was not alone. In Ireland, the Celtic tiger certainly roared, but it too was partly built on a real estate bubble. In just 10 years, property prices quadrupled and Ireland gorged itself 550,000 houses were built. Nearly 300,000 have never been occupied. 
And here too, for a period, the good times rolled. Per head of population, Ireland had more Mercedes than Germany. And Ireland too had its ghost estates. You know, it rezoned so much land for housing that it would have to have doubled its population to fill the houses that were planned. Greece, too, reveled in easy money. Suddenly, this Aegean nation was, burst, was boasting more Porsche Cayennes than anywhere else in Europe. Perhaps a clue as to what was to come lay with the philosophy of Aristotle Anassis, who for a time was Greece's most famous businessman and the one-time husband of Jackie Kennedy. To be successful, he said, look tanned, live in an elegant building, even if you're in the cellar, be seen in smart restaurants, even if you nurse one drink, and if you borrow, borrow big. And that's precisely what Greece did. So what lay behind this delirium which I have just described? When these countries joined the euro and became part of a monetary union, there was one interest rate for all. Low interest rates, which suited Germany, which was in a relative slump at the time, stoked spending booms elsewhere. And German and French banks were only too willing to pump funds and French and German industries to sell goods into these fast-charging economies. In 2005, with Irish property boom at its peak, interest rates were at 2%. They needed to be at at least 6% to rein in the boom. And during this period, Germany's current account surplus rose to 7.5%, whilst deficits appeared elsewhere. Now, it was in 2008 that the good times ended. Lehman Brothers, as you all recall, collapsed, credit dried up, and the great unmasking began. As the legendary American investor Warren Buffett once observed, it is only when the tide goes out that you discover who is swimming naked. It took a year for Europe to be exposed, and the first naked swimmer to show up was Greece in October 2009. There had been an election. In the days that followed, it was discovered that Greece's deficit was twice what had been acknowledged. Greek accounts were as good as fakes. Europe was stunned. It simply had no plan, no structure to deal with a country that might not be able to finance itself in a monetary union. And so began what became known as the Eurozone crisis, which has shaken Europe to the core. The Euro was launched only partly for economic reasons. It was principally a political project, a building block to ever closer union. The European project had had a string of successes. It helped make conflict between the European great powers, particularly France and Germany, impossible. It presented a united front against communism. It served as a beacon for democracy for parts of Central and Eastern Europe. It created a single market and was expanding the free movement of people. Many of Europe's leaders saw a single currency as the next giant step towards integrating Europe. The dream was given by momentum by the fall of the Berlin Wall. As the wall came down, it was soon apparent that the old fear of a united and powerful Germany had not completely disappeared. It lurked there in the minds of leaders like Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, the then German Chancellor at the time, recalls her saying, we beat the Germans twice, and now they're back. 
Margaret Thatcher had an ally in François Mitterrand, the French president. At a lunch together in the Elysee Palace, he warned that reunification would result in Germany gaining more influence in Europe than Hitler ever had. He believed Germany needed to be bound more tightly into Europe through deeper European integration. I believe, he said, it is the EU and only the EU that can contain this German power. The German Chancellor understood a price would have to be paid for German reunification, and that price was a shared currency, the euro, replacing what for Germans was the beloved Deutschmark. So the French and others saw a single currency as a way of binding a reunited Germany into Europe and its institutions. Now, countries intending to join the euro had to meet certain criteria. They had to pare down their debt and reduce their deficits. But in many instances, the figures were fudged. The German Chancellor at the time, who I've just said was Helmut Kohl, was specifically warned, for instance, about Italy's finances. But he said he felt the weight of history. You couldn't go ahead without the Italians. Well, as for the Greeks, the view was, well, you couldn't say no to the country of Plato. So officials and leaders were caught up in the romance of the project and rules were bent and broken as they would continue to be, not just by countries like Greece and Italy, but also by countries like France and Germany. Now, many economists had raised doubts. It was not just that some of these economies were so different. It was questioned how you could have monetary union without fiscal union, controlling budgets and spending, and if you had that, you probably needed political union. Even the German Chancellor said that monetary union without political union would be like a castle in the air. But the early years silenced the critics. Europe was booming, and very rapidly the euro became the world's reserve currency. But as I have said, the years of easy credit came to an end in 2008, and by the following year, Greece was in difficulty. In early 2010, the prevailing view was that Greece just needed to slash its spending and get its house in order. Now, the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, did not like rule breakers or the profligate. She had, for instance, praised the thriftiness of the Swabian housewife. But as 2010 developed, it was apparent that Greece could not manage its debts and the EU was left with a huge dilemma. One of the conditions that had persuaded the Germans to give up their Deutschmark was an undertaking that countries would not be responsible for the debts of others. That meant no bailouts. But under pressure from other European leaders, Angela Merkel was persuaded to abandon this key commitment. During this period and I'm talking now about early 2010, events were not being driven by politicians, but by the bond markets. It reminded me of what President Clinton's advisor, James Carville, once wrote. I used to think, he said, if there was reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the pope. But now I want to come back as the bond market. That way, you can intimidate everybody. In early 2010, the bond market was intimidating Europe's politicians. The Americans and others were saying that if Greece defaulted, it would undermine the European banking system, there would be contagion, it would drag down other European countries and threaten the global economy. On Friday, 
May the 7th, 2010, a dangerous mood was detected in the markets. There were a huge number of phone calls between Europe's leaders. They detected that real sentiment was turning against the euro. When they assembled in Brussels, many of those leaders gathering feared that weekend they would lose the single currency. The president of the European Central Bank at the time was a man by the name of Jean-Claude Trichet, and he told them, as they gathered, we have the worst crisis since World War II. And he pulled out some charts, some flowcharts, and he was very angry. He told the leaders they had to take responsibility for what had happened. And he wasn't just talking about what had happened in recent weeks. He reminded them that in 2005, he had circulated a memo showing the vast and growing differences in labor costs building up between the countries. Another indication of the great divide was what had happened to prices in the decade leading up to 2008. In Germany, they had risen 9%, but 40% in Italy, 56% in Spain, 67% in Greece. These developments had taken place and no action had been taken, and Trichet um, put it to them, and he was extremely uh, angry, and he demanded action. At the end of a long weekend and before the markets opened in Asia, the EU agreed to set up a 750 billion euro rescue fund. They had already agreed to a massive bailout for Greece. Now, the Prime Minister of Greece at the time, as you will all recall, was a man by the name of George Papandreou. He warned his country of very tough days ahead, for in exchange for being rescued, there would have to be severe spending cuts and a slashing of wages. He says, and he told me this, that Angela Merkel told him that Greece was in effect being punished. Why? To dissuade other countries from ever seeking a bailout. But the Greeks took to the streets. Buildings were burnt and people died. And it led to a war of words between the Greeks and the Germans. The Germans were offended by the Greek reactions. In their eyes, they had loaned Greece large sums and they expected the people to embrace reforms. They were also appalled by what they heard. And the German papers, we're talking about uh, May, June, July of 2010, were full of these stories. For instance, in Greece, you could retire at 50 if you did a hazardous job. It turned out there were a lot of these hazardous jobs. In fact, more than 500 of them. Hairstylists were judged to be a dangerous occupation. All that handling of hair dye. Trombonists, too. All that puffing. And even journalists could head for early retirement on those Greek islands. The microphones were judged to contain dangerous bacteria. The German papers were incredulous. Some German politicians called on the Greeks to sell their islands. We give you cash, you give us Corfu, was one of the less tactful headlines. The Greeks not surprisingly, were furious and reminded the Germans they still owed Greece money from their time as occupiers in World War II. The currency that was supposed to bring Europe closer together was causing new divisions. Germany, with its stellar economy, became Germany's indispensable power. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, 
became Frau Europe. At one of the European summits, President Sarkozy of France turned to Angela Merkel and said, you know, we are made to get on. We are the head and legs of the EU. No, Nicola, replied the German Chancellor. You are the head and legs. I am the bank. There were important differences, particularly at the beginning. President Sarkozy blamed Chancellor Merkel for acting too slowly, for putting the future of the euro at risk. Certainly, in the early part of the crisis, and up until uh, a year ago, this was the key relationship, obviously, in Europe. And actually, the two players could not have been more different. As I uh, write in the book, she was cautious, as Angela Merkel, and analytical. He was hyperactive and impulsive. She disguised her ambition. He flaunted it. She was married to a chemistry professor who loved opera. He was married to a supermodel who loved the camera. Merkel would shop in her local convenience store near the Friedrichstrasse station. Sarkozy headed for Fouquet's on the Champs-Élysées. He flashed his Rolex. She did not even wear a ring. She recoiled from showiness. He reveled in the full glare of political theatre. He loved the physicality of campaigning, the backpatting, the touching of strangers. She hated his Gallic embrace. Sarkozy wanted European solidarity for Germany to deploy its economic might behind struggling countries like Greece. He favoured euro bonds or common debt. Angela Merkel was determined that the German taxpayers did not become the paymasters of Europe with the EU turning into a transfer union with German money flowing to the south. Later, it should be said that this became, despite the occasional rows, actually an excellent relationship with great respect between uh, Chancellor Merkel and Nicolas Sarkozy. Now, Greece was only the beginning, and after Greece came Ireland. In time, Greece, uh, Ireland was bailed out despite fierce resistance. They had even set up what they called a war room to resist being rescued. The truth was that when the country guaranteed the deposits in its banks, it took on a level of debt it could not support. The country was put under great pressure from the ECB to accept a rescue. They feared that uncertainty in Ireland could unsettle Italy and Spain, and eventually Italy caved in. The finance minister, a man by the name of Brian Lenehan, describes how he stood at Dublin Airport before he was going to take his uh, trip to Brussels to essentially uh, concede defeat, and in his own words he said he felt that hell was at the gates. And many in Ireland felt humiliated. One paper asked whether the Republican fighters in 1916 had died for a bailout from the German Chancellor with a few shillings of sympathy from the British Chancellor on the side. Then, after Ireland was bailed out, Portugal followed, then Greece a second time, then Spanish banks, and then Cyprus, all in time needed help. Who could have imagined that three years after the crisis began, depositors in two Cypriot banks with over 100,000 euros invested would stand to lose at least 60% of what they had put in. Now, these rescues or bailouts came at a heavy price. The Germans insisted that countries not only cut their spending and their deficits, but also reform their economies 
making it easier, for instance, to hire and fire workers. There was, if you like, a grand bargain. Germany would save the euro, yes, but other countries would have to become more like Germany. They couldn't devalue. After all, they were in a single currency. All they could do was to slash spending and bring down their costs to become more competitive. Over time, the ever-cautious Angela Merkel came to see saving the euro as central to her legacy. But in Europe, Berlin and Brussels ushered in an age of austerity. It was also, whatever way you look at it, a giant gamble. It turned traditional economics on its head. In the midst of a downturn, countries were cutting demand. And so some countries tumbled into a cycle of decline. Greece's Prime Minister, Antonis Samaras, spoke not of a recession, but of a great depression, a great depression of southern Europe. In just five years, the Greek economy shrunk 25%. That, too, is unprecedented in the modern era. We're now in the sixth year, yes, and the Greek economy again is expected to contract a further uh, 4%. GDP has fallen over 8% in Portugal, over 8% in Italy, over 6% in Spain. And herein, in my mind, lay the great disconnect. It should never be doubted the will and determination of this generation of Europe's leaders to defend the euro and the wider European project. But the officials rarely went to see the consequence of their policies. Until recently, stories from southern Europe were dismissed as anecdotes or mere reportage. But what was happening in parts of our Europe was profound. In Greece, in Athens, in the city of Athens, a major European capital, thousands of people became dependent on food kitchens. One former foreign editor of a Greek paper wrote, We are fighting to keep our dignity intact and to avoid the depression that is enveloping the country. We are luckier than the people who are forced to live in their cars. They park at a different spot every few days and usually rely on the kindness of strangers for bath and toilet facilities. There was a sharp increase in suicides in four or five of these countries. One of them in Greece was in public. Dimitris Christoulis shot himself in Syntagma Square outside Parliament. He left a note which read that he could not face the prospect of scavenging through garbage bins for food and becoming a burden to my child. In Spain, as the property market collapsed, tens of thousands could no longer pay their mortgages. 400,000, over 400,000 people have been evicted from their homes. Only a few days ago, I was in Jerez in southern Spain, and I visited a family. Uh, Lorenzo had been a, a truck driver, but had lost his job two years ago. His wife, Yolanda, had been in uh, the tourist industry or the hotel industry. She was out of work. And at one point, whilst I was in the apartment, they opened their fridge door, and there was scarcely any food inside. They had not eaten fish or meat for five months, scrimping so they could give their seven-year-old son a balanced diet. And this crisis has led to a great migration, with often the best and brightest heading abroad. In Ireland, over 100,000 young people have left, 
mainly, as before in their history, heading west to America and Canada. In Spain, a similar figure, 100,000 graduates have left the country. Many young people now there are learning Germany, German because they see their future there. And in Portugal, there's a great irony. Tens of thousands of people have left for the countries they once colonized, Angola, Mozambique, and Brazil, for they take the view it is easier to find work in Africa than in Portugal. Now, Germany is often blamed for this, sometimes unfairly. I have seen myself in Cyprus, Greece, Spain, and Italy, Angela Merkel depicted as Hitler. Of course, it is absurd and an insulting comparison. But in Greece, when Merkel visited, there were protesters in full Nazi uniforms. In Italy, during the recent elections, I heard a socialist candidate in Naples tell the crowd, go show Angela Merkel, it is not a German Europe. Oskar Fontaine, the German politician who was the German finance minister when uh, the euro was set up, recently said, or in fact this week said, unemployment has reached a level that puts democratic structures ever more in doubt. And it is part of what has happened during this period that there's a, the threat can be seen to democracy itself. For the bailed-out countries were no longer in charge of their own economies. They were in the hands of an unelected troika, the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the EU. These officials determined whether a country got another tranche of money and what policies should be followed. When George Papandreou, the Greek Prime Minister, decided to put the terms of a second bailout to a referendum, he was turned on by other European leaders, the last thing they wanted was for the people to be consulted. So Papandreou was summoned to Cannes where a G20 summit was going on and he was told that the vote should not be about the bailout but whether to stay in or leave the EU. And a very revealing open mic uh, picked up what President Sarkozy uh, thought about what Papandreou was suggesting and he was in conversation with uh, Barack Obama. And he referred to Papandreou as a madman. His acts were those, he said, of a depressed man. It was not worth laying into a man who was already down. He's already on his knees, he said, knocked out. That was the response to a man who suggested maybe it was an idea to put it to the people. Now, in all of this, Britain was the outsider. But the Eurozone crisis has profound implications for the UK. On the one hand... There are plenty of people who said, I told you so. They never believed such disparate countries could be yoked together with the same currency. On the other hand, Britain needed a strong, growing Eurozone to trade with. After repeated calls for Europe to get out the big bazooka and fix this crisis, President Sarkozy, as you might recall, finally lost his patience with David Cameron. Even though, in fact, the two men got on well, Sarkozy, in October 2011, turned on Cameron and said, we're sick of you criticising us and telling us what to do. In December of that year, the Prime Minister used his veto. He was not prepared to see the rest of the EU sign up to a fiscal treaty controlling budgets and spending without safeguards for Britain and the city. The European press, revealingly, turned on Britain. 
Le Mans said, the Europeans have booted the English out of Europe. Uh, a deliberate reference to Joan of Arc, who before beating the English at Orléans in 1429, as I'm sure you all recall, is reported to have said, I'm sent here by God, the King of Heaven, each and all, to put you out of all France. Certainly, in those days, perfidious Albion got a good kicking. The episode underlined that Britain has always had an ambivalent relationship with the European project. Winston Churchill had spoken of recreating the European family in a structure called, it may be, he said, the United States of Europe. He was never clear what place in all of this he envisaged for Britain. But he had also told the French leader, Charles de Gaulle, that every time Britain has to decide between Europe and the open sea, it is always the open sea that we shall choose. Through the Thatcher years to the present, the relationship has remained uneasy, and David Cameron has warned that support for membership is wafer thin, and we are promised an in-out referendum in 2017 if David Cameron wins re-election, or perhaps if it all happen sooner. The Europeans are divided in their response. The French president has warned against allowing Britain to cherry-pick what it likes and dislikes. But it would be wrong to see Britain as entirely isolated. Britain does have allies, and there are many in Europe keen to keep the UK on board. In particular, Angela Merkel. She sees Britain as an important counterbalance to France. She does not share, with the, certainly with the current French leader, his views of how to run an economy, and she also still regards France as too statist and therefore is desperate, that's probably not quite the right word, but is very, very keen uh, to keep uh, Britain in the EU. Interestingly, soon after she indicated this, one of the most widely read German papers wrote this, uh, and it, it was addressed to what they called the Friends of Mint Sauce, and those who drive on the left, which is presumably us, uh, and the paper appealed for us to stay in the EU. But dear Britons, please stay, it implored us. You are so crazy, we need your opposition, your obstinacy, rather than a united Europe, and above all, we love your quirky royals, your punk, your sense of humour. Now, I'm sure that was all tongue-in-cheek, but there is, not just in political circles in Germany, but you detect this throughout Germany, uh, a real desire for Britain to stay in the EU. Now, the UK wants a more flexible Europe with countries enjoying different levels of membership. Many of the Europeans want a more integrated Europe. Some see the crisis as an opportunity to build the United States of Europe. The tension between those positions will be played out in the years ahead. And interestingly, just to digress for a second, as each week goes by, there are others who are seeking a looser arrangement. It would be wrong to see Britain as the only country doing this. I noticed this week, for instance, the Slovak finance minister, Peter Casimir, said, it's hard to bind 17 countries in one role. Some countries which need less of a consolidation have adapted at a faster pace than those which really need to consolidate. We are also in the midst of a major argument about the management of the crisis. Could cutting government spending and implementing the reforms be carried out successfully with economies already in decline? The German finance minister, when I spoke to him in December, he said, well, what was the alternative to bringing down these deficits? It would have happened outside the single currency. 
But others are now arguing there has been a great miscalculation. Even the IMF concluded that cuts in public spending have had a much steeper impact on the real economy. And then there is the current argument, uh, which I'm sure all the economists here have followed, over the work by two economists, Reinhardt and Rogoff, on the relationship between debt and growth. Their work had concluded that when debt got above 90% of GDP, growth declined rapidly, and it definitely influenced European officials. Now the findings are in doubt. Then there are those who question, why did deficits have to be brought down to 3%? Why that figure? The New York Times, only the week before last, in an editorial asked, all the evidence shows that this bitter medicine is killing the patient. The new Prime Minister of Italy, Enrica Letta, said this on taking office. I'll speak to you in the subversive language of truth. Fiscal rigour alone will kill us. So, two and a half years into the crisis, we are beginning to see an easing off of austerity. Countries are being given longer to meet their targets. It raises other questions. In prescribing austerity first, did EU officials and the German government get it wrong. By trying to cut debt and slash spending, they believed they were paving the way for growth and making these countries more competitive. But did they underestimate the impact of reducing demand as countries were heading into a downturn? In trying to save their currency and their project, have they broken southern Europe? Or will these countries emerge stronger and leaner as many in the German government believe. And then there is the question, where will growth come from? Certainly the Germans say, well, they hope that these countries will run up a surplus and that they will get growth from exports. But are all these countries going to be exporting at the same time? It is the great unknown, but the future of the European project, in my view, depends on the answers. For put another way, are millions suffering because of a dream which turned dangerous? Europe, our neighbourhood, is in a period of profound change and upheaval. When it is over, it will be a different place, and that is what I tried to capture in this book of contemporary history. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start the ball rolling with the first question, but then um, it's very much over to you, and we have uh, over half an hour for Q&A. There will be there are at least two roving mics, so uh, can, if you have a question to ask, can you put your hand up, uh, and then if I sort of select you, can you um, then uh, wait until the microphone is here to, um, to, 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 to before responding. Uh, we are actually recording this event, and we're hoping to make this available as a podcast, and clearly if you speak before the mic arrives, uh, your question will be inaudible, and therefore the answer may not make very much sense. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to start the first question, um, and perhaps can I, Gavin, can I press sort of combine what you've been talking about tonight with your previous role, which was uh, a US-based one. 
and um, sort of push you slightly on something you touch upon in the book, namely American interventions in uh, the recent, in, in the Europe crisis. So what role do you see the Americans as having played, uh, and in particular Timothy Geithner has sometimes been pointed to as a fairly important actor? <coughs> Um, I, I certainly covered the uh, Obama campaign in, in, in 2008. When the crisis really began developing in 2010, uh, President Obama and Timothy Geithner saw what was happening in the Eurozone as threatening both to President Obama's re-election chances and indeed to the uh, global economy. And there was a meeting in Washington in April 2010, uh, and it involved uh, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, it involved senior bankers uh, and other people. And Timothy Geithner, at one point, uh, for some reason the Germans weren't there, but Jim, uh, Timothy Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, at one point banged the table and said, why will you not do something about this? Uh, and what he was wanting was obviously for uh, the Europeans to try and get out ahead of this crisis. And the Americans definitely believed that if Greece defaulted almost rapidly, very, very soon after, the markets would turn their attention to the other weaker countries. They would default, and very soon the euro would unravel, uh, and they believed this would have a knock-on effect on the global economy. And in one year, and I'm not sure if it now was uh, 2010 or 11, no, I think it was 2011, I know that President Obama phoned Angela Merkel over a dozen times. It was that important uh, to uh, the White House. Uh, and sometimes uh, those appeals were made in coordination uh, with uh, uh, the British as well, although I'm, I'm, I'm often told uh, when I'm in Europe uh, that they actually preferred the American approach, which was done more privately, to the British approach, which tended to be done with a microphone. Okay, thank you. I think I'm going to stand up at the lecture yeah, so I, I can see everybody, and then you... And you I thought watch. I might stand there, because I realise none of the people over there I can look at, so okay. I'll, I'll share the uh, microphone okay. with you. Um, great, so um, can, we, can we have some, some questions from the floor? What I think we'll do is um, I'll uh, sort of take two or three at a time, so perhaps if you can sort of keep a note of, of, of sure. the questions as they come in. So, uh, it's over to you. Yes, um, over there. Thank you. That was <clears throat> absolutely fascinating. The part that I hadn't uh, appreciated before was the um, growing concerns about unemployment um, uh, th that you set out at the beginning. I would be really interested to know if there have been any changes of policy um, uh, from the um, government's more focused on austerity um, in response to that changed uh, concern. Okay. Um, to collect a couple more before... Passing back to our speaker to answer. Yes, here in the front, there's a mic on its way. Charles Jenkins. Um, how, how do you see the differences with, with Britain? After all, Britain is, in a way, in many ways, in the same situation as a, we, we are cutting government expenditure, raising taxes um, in, a, in a recession, making that recession worse. On the other hand, you, you have the dilemma that if you don't do anything, then the de deficit just goes on and debt goes on rising. Mm -hmm. Okay, and yes, the, the lady behind you there, yes. Um, in view of the seriousness of the euro crisis, do you think the euro has a future? Okay, 
short and sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. okay. Let me take the third question first. Has the euro uh, a future? Certainly, I think at the moment it, all the indications are that it does have a future. As I said when I was talking, you should never underestimate the determination of Europe's leaders to defend the project. I know sometimes some very sceptical British officials have attended meetings and they've come away with a sense of the absolute commitment. If the euro were in a sense to break up, it would not break up because of a lack of commitment. The biggest risk at the moment to the euro, and the risk has changed during this period, would be if one country simply got to the point they were not prepared to accept any longer high unemployment, uh, a declining economy, and in the end there was, via protests on the streets or via political parties, in the end they said, you know, we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. In December, I spoke to one of the most senior uh, players on the European scene, uh, and he said to me at the end of an interview I was doing with him, he said, you know, I think we've got about two years, and here is a man who's utterly committed to the European project. He said, I think we've got about two years. And he said, if we cannot show growth at the end of those two years and begin to show some of this unemployment coming down, then all bets are off. And in the end, this is the question um, I think about the euro, you can be as committed as you want to be in favour of a more integrated Europe. But ultimately, that is not the question that people are asking. The question that people are asking is, does this single currency deliver? And it has to deliver, I think, in order uh, to survive. There are all kinds of ideas out there about a northern euro and a southern euro, uh, and there are those who say, well, in the end, the wrong countries joined. At the moment, in realistic terms, none of that is being discussed. They are still fully committed uh, to uh, fighting uh, for the uh, survival of the euro. So in my view, in the short term, certainly, uh, I see absolute commitment, and I don't see uh, the euro... Uh, disappearing. To your question about the growing concern about unemployment and has there been a a change in policy. It's interesting to me, and I'm not going to be specific here, more slightly anecdotal. There was for a long period quite a silence about this rising unemployment uh, in Europe. And I can remember when uh, youth unemployment, for instance, in Spain, went above 40%. And I I remember thinking, 40% is absolutely incredible to me, uh, that it's 40%. And then, as we know, it came above 50%, and now it's getting towards uh, 60%. And in Spain, it is leading to, and this this is journalese when people talk about a lost generation, but there are tens of thousands of young people who are not in education, who are not in work. I've met a young man who had put in a 1,000 application forms. He said he only got about six or seven answers back uh, and still hasn't found work. There are many who, yes, there is an active black economy. That alleviates some of the, the, the problems there. Uh, it is changing 
Spanish society, there's greater migration. There's also what they call the hotel mummer effect. The hotel mummer effect is, is now uh, usual in Spain for young people in their 30s still to be living at home. They simply can't afford uh, to move out. But as regards what Europe did about it and what it's doing about it, I think for a period that is not what they were focusing on. What they were focusing upon was the bond spreads. Can we ensure that some country does not default? And therefore, the human cost, the social costs, certainly took uh, a back position. Uh, Now, that has changed. In every speech you hear now, every European leader talks about growth and bringing down uh, unemployment. However, there's an interesting question, which perhaps I probably won't answer, but it comes down to this. Where do jobs come from? And actually, jobs often come from small and medium-sized companies. They come from innovation. And beyond all of this, one of the big questions for Europe is, will be how will Europe become a center of innovation? How will it compete with these fast-charging emerging countries? And in the end, it is a crucial question. And you know, if growth returns, which it will do, of course, at some stage, and there is growth of let's say 1.5%, which would be optimistic for most of these countries in 2014. There won't be growth this year. Even that will not lead to a fall in unemployment. I'm told, I'm reliably told, and somebody can tell me if I'm wrong, that you have to get growth above 2% in order to see that unemployment fall down. And that's why I say that it's incredible for young people to look ahead to a future where uh, there is so little prospect of work And as regards, there are numerous policies out there to help young people. Some of them are reasonably smart, some less so. Um, Will they make a difference? In the end, those small and medium-sized companies have to start taking on uh, new workers. They have to be prepared to go for shorter-term contracts. Now, the Germans, to be fair to them, are pushing some of this. Uh, They are suggesting some of this to the rest of Europe. But it's a slow process And I don't know the answers to it, um, but they were very, very slow to take up on it and realise just the social consequences in Europe. Yes, it is interesting. Britain, on the sidelines, and there are a lot of people who are saying we have far more tools to to, uh, address the uh, questions and problems out there. We can do more quantitative easing. We can do all kinds of things that other European uh, countries can't do. But the struggle has been the same in Europe, how, in, in Britain, and indeed the deficit in Britain at the moment is higher than in some other European countries. Um, now, we will only be able to judge this, I think, in, in two or three years' time. In the end, will Britain have been able to use its greater flexibility? Will it have survived its own austerity and come out of it with greater growth? We don't know at the moment. There are plenty of people in Europe who say, well, you know, look at the, the debt levels in Britain, haven't really come down. Look at the deficit level, it's higher than in other countries, and say, well, you know, you're outside the euro, but it hasn't made that much of a difference. And one thing I am sure about, all of that will play, if we get to a point when there's an in-out referendum here, uh, that will be part of the you know, big argument about did Britain benefit from being outside the euro or not. Okay, if you stay there, I'll, right, I'll okay. stand up so I can actually see you. Okay, further next round of questions. Okay, uh, yes, here in the front row. Yes, <coughs> John Strafford. Um, Mr. Hewitt, you 
spoke about the levels of unemployment. At what point do these youths, what hope have they got for the future? And at what point do they decide that revolution is the only way to change the system? Because you also talked about the democratic deficit and that, uh, we look at the European institutions where these people, uh, the Commission are taking decisions unaccountable to the people, unelected by the people, a European Parliament where nine uh, countries have got close list system of elections, so uh, only the parties count and the electorate doesn't. A council of Ministers where people like Angela Merkel are only accountable to the electors of Germany or, or the electors of their own countries. So uh, they won't be able to see or hope for democratic change uh, uh, to bring about the change. And is revolution going to be the only answer? Okay. Um, there was a gentleman at the back there. <coughs> Do you see it being beneficial for the Greeks, for instance, to leave the euro? If they were to steal a march on the other... Uh, southern econ economies, as, as, as I see it, they're sort of two major industries of shipping and tourism. Shipping is highly cyclical. Uh, if the rest of Europe could buy drachmas a hell of a lot cheaper than euros, would their economy offset the hyperinflation and sort of rebound quicker than the other southern European economies if they were to leave the euro? Okay, and there was a lady in the middle of that row there. Hello, Maria from the Department for All Pensions. Uh, my question is related to. Um, Germany pushing some programs or asking for spending to be cut in different countries. Is this leading to a more fiscal union rather than a monetary union? And uh, can Europeans, all of them, behave as Germans? Can they become Germans? <laughs> <laughs> okay. At what point does revolution come? Uh, impossible, obviously, to say, and it may, there may well not be uh, any kind of revolution. But you do see, when you travel around Europe, uh, increasing frustration. And, I mean, Spain's interesting. Just little anecdotes of uh, the Spanish were wonderfully sort of peaceful in terms of their demonstrations. Almost all of them now end up with some trouble I don't, think these, I don't think any of these countries are particularly close uh, to a revolution, but sometimes little incidents can channel together uh, some of this uh, frustration. The biggest frustration is not, I should say, with what you would describe as the democratic deficit. It is with a failing economy and a lack of jobs. As regards the democratic deficit, it is interesting. A lot of people who are very committed to closer union recognize and accept that something has to change. Even those who believe monetary union requires fiscal union also say you cannot have control over budget and spending without a political uh, union. When Angela Merkel <coughs> in 2011 pushed her uh, what she what hoped would be a fiscal treaty, but David Cameron got in the way and it became a fiscal pact uh, so that uh, you know, countries in a eurozone would have to coordinate their tax and spending uh, more closely. There was a question raised at the time, and it is always an important question in democracy. Who do you hold responsible? If you don't like a policy, 
If I don't like something, who do I hold responsible? And there cannot be an answer to that. If your tax and spending is being coordinated at European level, who do, who do I hold responsible for it? And that is a problem, to be fair to many of the people who are pushing this, they recognize and realize something will have to be done about it. You mentioned the European Parliament. Uh, the European Parliament, interestingly enough, under the Lisbon Treaty, has become much more powerful. And there are some bright, smart, interesting people. I mean, they have taken a lead, for instance, over things like bankers' bonuses. Yet it is also true that if you look over the last five or six European uh, uh, elections of the European Parliament, the turnout has been, has been falling. It is quite apparent that ordinary people in Europe do not really see it uh, as, uh, as something that they are, are committed to. Uh, but definitely, I mean, even in Germany, I, I say even in Germany, you hear at the highest level people most committed to the European project, they recognize somehow or other at some stage some democ more democracy has to be... Uh, uh, breathe or, or put inside this project. Now, as regards, would it be beneficial for the Greeks to uh, uh, leave the Eurozone? I think there might have been a time in 2010, early in 2010, when it, you could argue it might have been beneficial. The answer with the problem with these things is however many economists come out and tell you what's going to happen. The economists have had a bad run during this. They've always been suggesting that they know what's going to happen. Often they haven't known what's going to happen. Look, what do I think would happen if Greece left the euro? Of course, their debts are denominated in euros, uh, so there would be definitely a run on the banks. Uh, the banks, uh, there would probably have to be exchange controls. There would certainly be greater inflation. The big question is this, and it's, it's a total unknown, would be not what would happen in the first three months, which would be very difficult and very unpleasant. What would happen, because there would be a massive devaluation, what would happen a year and a half, two years down the road? And I suspect, and certainly the poll suggests this, the Greeks are not prepared uh, uh, at the moment to take that gamble. And all the polls suggest the Greeks are, despite all the pain that they've endured, I think the last poll I saw was about 60% of Greeks said would still prefer to stay within the shelter of the euro. And going back to the question we heard at the front here, at the moment, despite all of these problems that have happened, the loyalty to the single currency, you could say, is pretty remarkable. But, I mean, even in, even in Spain, I, I think, again, the figures are coming down. But, uh, you know, people there still remain, I think, loyal on the whole to staying within uh, the euro. Now, your question was about the... Um, uh, was about fiscal union, wasn't it? Was, what was well, your question? No, fiscal union... Yeah, um... Oh, rather than. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, rather than. I, I think one of the problems about uh, when a monetary union was set up, there were people who were saying, well, that's fine. How are you going to control budgets and spending? Now, when the euro was set up, there was a thing called the Growth and Stability Pact, and countries were supposed to keep their deficits uh, to 3% of GDP and their debt 60% uh, GDP. Well, some of the first people to break those rules were the French and Germans, and that happened in 2003, I think. And uh, from then on, it, it in the end sort of undermined the, the discipline that they had put in there. Once it was undermined, uh, certainly then what happened, these huge bubbles built up, 
uh, rules uh, were broken. But there's no question, we don't yet have a fiscal union, but certainly what has happened in the post part Uh, the past two and a half years is that a giant step has been taken towards that. It's not one or the other. A monetary union, many people say, needs a fiscal union. You can't have uh, a monetary union without controlling uh, uh, tax and and, and spending. And you had, you said something about the Germans at the end. For example, civil servants in Germany were paid less, more or less than in Greece. And of course, they they argue that um, civil servants should be paid the same in Germany or even in Greece or even less because they are doing the same job in uh, more time. So they should pay be less. So this is a fiscal intervention if they ask for cuts in how civil servants are paid in Greece. So should we start to behave as uh, Germans, all of the Europeans? <laughs> The, the, the truth is you have, uh, you have a monetary union but huge differences within the monetary union. Even today, a company, let's say a middle-sized company in Germany, uh, the, what it has to pay for borrowing is a fraction of what an, an Italian company of a similar size would have to pay. Um, in terms of what workers are paid... Um, there are huge differences. Uh, it, is, it is also true, and I mentioned this in, when I was speaking earlier, the wage costs in some of these other countries soared during the first 10 years. One of the things that Germany has been very successful at is keeping its wages down. And so you've had what they call imbalances, but you're in a monetary union where there is a huge difference in wages, a huge difference in prices, uh, and... Uh, Will that be sorted out? Well, I think some of those things gradually will be sorted out, but there are those who say that in the end you will only sort this out <clears throat> if you have uh, a political union and, and the United States of Europe. But um, I, I remember listening to, um, I think it was Helmut Schmidt, the former German chancellor, who said uh, at a meeting I was at in Berlin earlier this year, who said there will not be a United States of Europe this century. Uh, and I certainly, there are people who use the phrase, but in the way that it, if you think of the United States of America, very few of the senior officials believe that will happen. In the end, the, the histories, uh, the culture are, are too, too different. So you will still, you will continue to have for the foreseeable future countries that share a currency but are hugely different. They are different in culture and they are different in their economic experiences. Okay, we've probably got time for one more round of questions. So, uh, yes, there's a gentleman in front here. Um, have you ever lost any uh, thoughts on where we would be without Europe um, if we wouldn't have the EU, if we wouldn't have the Euro? Okay, nice, nice and short there. Yes, over here. Um, going back to the topic of uh, remedies for um, uh, the, the current situation, the crisis, um, and, and, and the example of Greece, you've mentioned uh, we, the, the uh, examples of bus drivers earning a lot more for, uh, than compared to in the UK. Um, other examples are uh, something I've read in The Economist, uh, there's a few dozen doctors in the whole of Athens who ever pay tax in, uh, in, 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 uh, despite having housing and villas with swimming pools in the back. I don't know how they 
how they establish that, but that's the sort of examples <laughs> given. Now, is that a... Um, um, uh, the consequence of that is clearly that there, is, there needs to be some sort of a cultural shift in the country, in uh, people actually paying taxation and uh, people believing in the democratic system. So do you think that that is what needs to be done, a wholesale change in the culture for, uh, for countries like Greece? Okay, and one final question. We've got lots of contenders. Um, oh, uh, the gentleman in the middle, the back row there. I know the most difficult person to get to. Sorry, people with the microphones. Uh, I don't do it deliberately. Um. Where we've got uh, countries living beyond their means and a visceral reaction to people to changing their lifestyles in order to address that, during your travels, have you come across any leaders who've stepped into that Churchill, blood, toil, sweat and tears mode and been able to sort of bring about any sort of attitude change in, um, in the peoples they're addressing. Okay. Without making a political point, <clears throat> I think most people uh, believe that the creation wasn't then the European Union, but it began with the European coal and steel community, the idea of meshing together these industries in order to prevent war returning to Europe was a fantastic achievement. And that's not to make a political point. I think when you ask, you know, where would we be without that, that still remains the underlying narrative to preserve peace. But the interesting thing is this. I think in a period when Europe is not delivering in terms of jobs and the economy, there is a search going on for a new narrative. What is this European Union for? And one of the narratives they've come up with, which is interesting, is that in a period of globalization, the small countries don't count for anything. You don't have a voice. You have to, in the end, combine together uh, in order to compete with and to stand alongside some of those big emerging economies. Tony Blair, I remember, not so long ago, talked about that, and he said it is about power now. It is about real politic, real politic. And I partly go along with that. It is interesting to me that there are many countries around the world, Canada, Australia, Singapore, Turkey, I'm just pulling a few out of that, who seem far less obsessed with the need somehow to be part of something together than they are in Europe. But if you talk to Angela Merkel and others, I mean, Angela Merkel at one stage at the European Parliament chided Britain and said, well, we like Britain, but, you know, I'm sure you don't want to be on your own. Uh, and definitely that is the new narrative that in a globalized world, in order to have strength and influence, you need to be together. So I, I think that that is the new narrative. But as I've said, I think that that is fine. Uh, but in the end, uh, Europe has to deliver in terms of people's lives and uh, prosperity. Um, culture, swimming pools. It's very easy to end up with stereotypes. I remember talking to George Papandreou, the Greek Prime Minister, and he said, you know, 
um, somehow the words got around, Greeks are lazy. And he came up with a, a very convincing set of statistics saying, you know, Greeks work very, very hard. But were there examples of Greeks cheating the system? Yes, there were. And to, to Germans, it was incomprehensible. And one of the failings, I believe, in working out who was going to initially join a single currency, uh, the euro, was to dismiss culture and the importance of culture. Culture plays a big impact, and it feeds into the economy. And the Greeks did do different things, uh, and still do, uh, to the Germans, and it upsets them. And they, 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 they write about all these stories about you know, the number of swimming pools. You had to pay a tax on swimming pools. I think that was it. Uh, and in one neighborhood, uh, which I think I know in, uh, just outside of Athens, there were only about, they're supposed to be about, I don't know, 100 swimming pools. And they put a helicopter up, and they ended up with 2,000 swimming pools or something. And um, th th there were lots of those stories. The difficulty is this. The hardest thing, as Mario Monti in Italy discovered, changing culture is a very difficult thing. And to change culture at the urging of outsiders is politically difficult and very, very sensitive. Um, I mean, uh, Mario Monti was not successful. I mean, he went after tax evaders in Italy. At one point, in a, uh, a village in, um, in northern Italy... Where, where the rich go over the new year, he put the Garia di Finanzia in there, and anybody who was driving a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini was pulled over and was asked quite simply, can you show us how you can afford a car like this? Mario Monti himself tried to take on Italian culture, certainly in, in relation to taxes, and had difficulty. So my view about it is, yes, the Germans are absolutely right. Some of these practices have to change. The problem is... If it is the Germans who suggest it, they can push back against it. But you're right. I mean, in the end, a successful, uh, integrated uh, uh, Europe will have to change. Some, will have to have some cultural change uh, involved in it. Uh, now, yes, your question about uh, leaders. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. Is uh, in Europe. Uh, we have lots of examples of leaders who are reluctant to lead. It's a strange thing. If you compete for power, it seems to me, you must be interested in exercising power. Yet time and time again, I've actually interviewed uh, leaders who say, when I ask them questions, they say, well, of course, that's for uh, Europe to decide, or uh, I think that should be done at the European level. They may be right. The slight difficulties, it gives the impression that they are either incapable or unwilling to lead. I, I interviewed um, Pierluigi Bassani, who's um, uh, uh, the centre-left leader in Italy, and I said to him, well, where are you going to find growth from? And he said to me, well, that's up to Europe. And I, I have to say this, looking across at him, I thought, well, why do I want to vote for you? And that's one of the problems, is that the powerlessness of leaders... Having said that, of course, the most powerful German leader in over 60 years is undoubtedly Angela Merkel. She is a, an astonishing uh, politician uh, in command totally of what she wants to do. Uh, she, without doubt, nothing really happens in Europe these days, or very little happens, without her uh, agreeing to it. Um, and so, I mean, I'm not sure always the Churchillian 
um, example of leadership is the one that can be repeated. Um, but she's a very, very significant um, leader. It's right to call her uh, Frau Europe. And how this crisis is sorted out, I mean, I believe she will be re-elected in September, will very much fall uh, on her uh, shoulders. And even if you disagree with her, even if you disagree with the level of austerity, if you go along with all of that, she is still um, a very impressive leader. Okay, thank you. Well, to judge by the number of hands that went up when I was uh, doing the last round of questions, we could go on and on for some time, but I have been asked to bring proceedings to a close at 7.45, so I suggest uh, that we give our speaker, uh, who has dealt with a lot of very varied questions with great humour and uh, and knowledge, uh, another round of applause.